Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 115, The Crimean War. First, I want to thank our newest Patreon patron, Georgi, as well as Stefan Stefanov and Andrea Andreev for making donations. Thank you so much, all three of you. And let's get into it. Last time, we saw the effects of the revolutions of 1848 come to Bulgaria in the form of refugees and ideas which helped spur the Vidin uprising. While this uprising was militarily crushed, it did lead to some reforms and saw the Ottomans taking a different approach to suppressing these movements. Then, also in part as a result of 1848, the Holy Alliance and Concert of Europe are fracturing as Russia seeks to use the goodwill it gained from helping to crush those revolutions to combat France's attempt to supplant its role as protector of Christians and holy sites in Palestine. In other words, when with Britain building a global empire and France under Napoleon III seeking to return to its past greatness, Russia's ambitions to grow its own power are clashing with them. As a result, in 1853, France broke treaty obligations by moving warships into the Black Sea, and Russia finally kicked things off by attacking the Ottoman navy. The Crimean War has begun. Now, as Russian armies began their advance in the summer of 1853, ostensibly not to begin a war, but simply to guarantee that the principalities were held once the Ottomans agreed to Russian demands, Bulgarians were preparing too. In August, Bulgarians in Galitz and Braila, near the mouth of the Danube in Moldavia, wrote a letter to Tsar Nicholas I asking for autonomy. Later in that year, Georgi Rokovsky was frantically building a web of secret societies aimed at preparing Bulgarians to always be ready to rise up when the Russians advanced into Bulgaria. Ivan Seliminsky was working in Bucharest to create a squad of 400 Bulgarian volunteers to fight with the Russians as well. Also in Bucharest, the wealthy Bulgarian merchants from Karlovo, Hristo and Evlogi Gergiev, you may recognize them as the statues outside of Sofia University, as well as the names of a major street in Sofia running along the Perlovska River. Well, these two, alongside other affluent Bulgarians in Bucharest, formed an organization called Epitropia, a political group aimed at helping to collect funds for a volunteer squad to aid the Russian army. Now, this organization sh- served wealthy Russophile Bulgarians in Wallachia even after the war, and within a year, it would actually obtain official recognition by Russia. So again, we're kind of seeing the results of Bulgarians becoming wealthier as a result of trade and some light industry within the Ottoman Empire. It's allowing those Bulgarians to exert themselves, to form organizations, to fund what they want to fund, whether it's military or kind of intellectual. And yeah, we're seeing that bear fruit here. Now, throughout this latter half of 1853, diplomats on all sides had been working frantically to prevent the outbreak of the Crimean War. But ultimately, posturing on both sides and Ottoman confidence resulting from British and French backing, along with public opinion pushing both sides to war, made the demands that both sides were making inevitably lead to war. 
And again, this is an interesting kind of byproduct of this new age of public opinion. Now that more in France and and, uh, and Britain, now that newspapers there are affecting public opinion, politicians have less wiggle room. You know, they're, they're doing this kind of posturing, but they're also pushing themselves into a corner where their ability to make decisions is restricted because they have to account for public opinion. So it's an interesting way this is affecting politics. Ultimately, though, the Ottomans used the presence of Russian troops in Wallachia and Moldavia as their main casus belli, the main reason they would declare war in October of that year. Now, at this stage, though, Russia still believed that France, Britain, and Austria might still side with her and that Russia could still use the war to gain former Ottoman territories. I mean, Russia had some reasons to believe this. They, Russia didn't think that these kind of Christian European powers would side with the Muslim Ottoman Empire against Russia. They also, again, thought that Russia's you know, actions to help put down the revolutions of 1848 meant that Russia was sort of a hero of the concert of Europe, that Russia had helped preserve peace in Europe, and that it deserved to you know, be given a little bit of wiggle room here as a reason. The desire of Britain and France to prevent growing Russian power outweighed their desire for new territory from the Ottomans or anything else they might gain from a Russian victory. Also, in a sign of how the balance of power had changed from the height of the Ottoman Empire, the Austrians were now really much more worried about the Russians than they were about the Ottomans. And so, you know, a war between them, you know, a few centuries past, the Austrians would have been very concerned with making sure Russia won a war against the Ottomans because they were scared the Ottomans would take their territory. Now they're much more afraid of the Russians winning uh, because the Russians would get more powerful and could potentially take their territory. The first few months of the Russian presence in Wallachia and Moldavia were relatively quiet, but in October, immediately following the declaration of war, Ottoman troops stationed in Vidin and Silistra crossed the Danube to attack. Using the fact that the Russians were occupied fighting them across from Vidin, the force which crossed at Silistra made a push for Bucharest, attempting to cut the Russian army in western Wallachia off from its supplies to the east. The Russians counterattacked an Ottoman fort on the Danube but were pushed back, meaning that the first real engagement of the war was an Ottoman victory. Still, the battle didn't amount to much because the Ottomans were unable to push for Bucharest, and so their whole ploy didn't go anywhere, despite the tactical victory. In November, at the, the aforementioned Battle of Sinop, that naval battle in the Black Sea, saw the Russians destroy a large portion of the Ottoman Black Sea fleet. But much more than that, this battle proved the power of a newly developed naval technology, guns that fired explosive shells instead of solid metal ones. Unsurprisingly, these shells were devastating against the wooden warships at the time. This battle effectively signaled the end of an era of wooden warships, an era which ironically basically covered all of human naval history up to this moment. From Sinop onward, naval powers around the world would scramble to develop ironclad warships, and naval warfare would start to evolve far more rapidly than ever before as a result. This victory meant that Russia had functional control of the Black Sea and could potentially land soldiers anywhere it liked on the northern Anatolian coast. It also meant that Russia had violated one of the previous ultimatums issued by Britain and France, pushing them closer to involvement in the war. 
Because the Ottoman ships had been ambushed in port, the Western media portrayed it as a massacre, again, further increasing public pressure for war in Britain and France and restricting the ability of their politicians to possibly pull back from the brink. As 1853 ended, further fighting across from Vidin was inconclusive, though the Russians did manage to besiege the Ottoman garrison there in late January. Meanwhile, Georgi Rokovsky was arrested for working with the Russian army to lay the groundwork for a Russian invasion of Bulgaria. He was betrayed by his old enemies, the Chorbajis of Kotel. He was imprisoned briefly in Schumann before being taken to Constantinople. However, on the way, the convoy was intercepted in Adrianople by his old friend Mustafa Bey, who freed him. Rokovsky then moved into Mustafa Bey's home in Constantinople. Elsewhere, yet more work was being done by Bulgarians to support the Russians. On February the 2nd, a Bulgarian political organization was formed in Odessa to work towards a solution to the Bulgarian question. During the Crimean War, it would play an important role in forming Bulgarian volunteer squads. After the war, it would conduct charitable works and support the Bulgarian Enlightenment and church independence before participating in the fighting of the 1870s, which, you know, we'll get to. Now, during the first few months of 1854, the Russians crossed the Danube and took Dobruja and laid siege to the Ottomans in Silistra on the south shore of the Danube and at Kalafat on the north shore across from Vidin. Just as these sieges were beginning and the Danubian front was stabilizing, on March the 4th, Britain and France finally declared war on Russia in response to his actions in the Black Sea. A British and French naval task force, which had been waiting in the Sea of Marmara, moved into the Black Sea to begin to take control of it. Odessa was bombarded, and the Crimean port of Sevastopol was blockaded to prevent the Russians from, well, sallying out to meet them. Now, interestingly, Greece also spent these months really trying to decide what to do. It wished to use this war as a chance to take more Ottoman territory but also couldn't really risk upsetting Russia, where it had considerable support. The Allies occupied the Greek port of Piraeus in part to ensure that Greece would stay in line. Still, despite all of this, Greece did invade Ottoman lands in Thessaly and Epirus early in the war under the assumption that the Russians would win. In spring of 1854, they incited revolts in Epirus and Crete against the Ottomans, but these were crushed, effectively removing Greece as a force of any note in the war and greatly harming the popularity of its king, Otto. So just to recap there, Greece didn't officially but more or less sided with Russia, tried to act against the Ottomans, all of it really went nowhere, and Greece looked rather foolish for it and just, you know, it was a lose-lose situation for them. In June, British and French forces landed at Varna, but were unable to aid the Ottomans in their fighting along the Danube quickly due to a lack of supplies. The Austrians and Prussians had also been busy, initially trying to decide whether to take actions against Russia. Austria, for its part, demanded that Russia withdraw from the principalities and not gain any territory in the war. It also signed a treaty with Prussia pledging mutual defense and to attack Russia should it threaten to take Constantinople. In other words, now, I find it interesting that this isn't emphasized as much in the history of the Crimean War, but to me, what this means is that even at this early stage, the outcome is somewhat foregone. Even if Russia were to win a major victory against the British, French, and Ottomans, it couldn't make any gains without risking war with Austria and Prussia. It seemed that 
the major point of agreement in holding up the concert of Europe had shifted from the preservation of the status quo overall to the preservation of the status quo of Russian power and influence. But really, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that Russia keeps fighting at this point because there's no way it's going to manage to defeat the Ottomans, Britain, Russia, Austria, and Prussia effectively by itself. It's just not going to happen. But much fighting will still occur. By July, the Ottomans crossed the Danube again to Ruse and took Georgiou, again threatening to take Bucharest and cut off Russian forces in Wallachia, basically cut them in half. But at this moment, a fortunate Austrian intervention gave Tsar Nicholas an out. Austria demanded the Russians withdraw from their principalities, again, and that both sides of the conflict stay out of them during the war. In other words, Austria gambled that, okay, this war can go on, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to stop the war on our own. However, we want to make sure that the war doesn't affect the kind of border territories between the Ottomans and the Russians, which are on our border as well. So that territory where all three of those empires meet is going to stay the same and the Austrians are going to make sure that happens. They don't want the Ottomans reoccupying and sort of effectively increasing their power, but they also don't want the Russians increasing their power. The Austrians are making a play for the status quo. Meanwhile, Rokovsky formed a military squad and left Constantinople for Kotel to aid the Russians. But once again, well, actually, once he starts doing this effectively, the Russians are starting to pull back as Austrian peacekeeping forces take their place to occupy the principalities. And so Rakosi's squad basically has to disband because there's nothing for it to do. He then settles in Kotel and continues to contribute to the war effort by writing patriotic pamphlets and poems. But with this development, with the principalities and basically the entire Danubian front being removed as a front in the war, Britain, France, and the Ottomans had to decide where else they could attack Russia. The Baltic Sea wasn't an option because they would need Prussia and Sweden to support them. And, well, they didn't have it. There was fighting in the Caucasus, but, well, that's a pretty tricky area to fight. It's farther away, harder supply lines, tougher terrain. And so they decided that an amphibious assault on Crimea was the best option. The aim was to destroy Russia's ability to operate in the Black Sea and thereby harm its economy and force it to end the war. During this summer period, the Russians decided to employ a naval tactic called fleet in being. Anyone who studied European naval history from the World Wars should be very familiar with this tactic. Essentially, the naval force is extremely valuable, right? We all know that building a navy is expensive. And so sending it out to face the enemy, risking its destruction, is extremely high risk. And so what you do, well, essentially the risk is that once that naval force is gone, you've lost this huge investment, but it also means that now the enemy can operate with complete impunity, which is extremely dangerous. And so what makes sense is actually to keep the naval force in port. That way it's protected, but it remains a constant threat forcing the enemy to always be ready to meet it and to, you know, use supply convoys and protect everything that you're doing and always be ready for the Navy to appear at any moment. However, this tactic is not as effective when a port can be easily blockaded, such that the enemy isn't really worried about your fleet because, well, it can easily defeat it the moment it tries to leave port and it's going to see your fleet the moment it does that. And this was the case with the Russian fleet locked up in Sevastopol. The Allies blockaded Sevastopol and... 
they weren't really scared of the Russian fleet because they just blow it out of the water at the moment it sailed out. Now, while the Ottoman alliance was working on their plan for attacking Crimea and bottling up the Russian fleet, an event that was just as momentous as the war itself was going on in Constantinople, but obviously a lot more subdued and not as many people noticed. Now, at this point in its history, the Ottoman Empire still had a very primitive banking system relative to the Western powers. Its Ministry of Finance was only about 15 years old and not very sophisticated. As a result, the Ottomans were struggling to finance this war, and in particular, to pay the costs of housing the British and French armies in Constantinople and Varna. As a result, in August of 1854, the Ottoman Empire was given a £3 million loan from Britain and France to help cover the cost of the war, followed by another £5 million loan the next year. Now, again, the Ottoman Ministry of Finance just wasn't able to properly evaluate how difficult it would be to service a debt this large. Soon, the Ottoman Empire was going to be plunged into an endless cycle of taking on more and more loans to cover the interest on its previous loans, as Britain and France imposed whatever rules they wished in return because they had all the leverage. If the Ottomans wanted to keep taking loans, they'd have to do X, and then they'd have to do Y, and they'd have to increase taxes here, and they'd have to reduce expenditures there. Now, we're going to discuss this in more detail, but for now, we can note the irony that while Britain and France are fighting alongside the Ottomans to kind of save them from the Russians, they're simultaneously sowing the seeds of Ottoman financial ruin in the process. And, well, as I said, we're going to see how that all plays out. So for now, with loans secured and preparations made, the Crimean campaign began in September. An enormous naval armada of 400 ships left Varna, again operating with impunity because the Russian Black Sea fleet was blockaded in Sevastopol. This allied navy landed about 52,000 men and supplies over the course of four days on a beach north of Sevastopol without any Russian interference. Again, a pretty Weird mistake on the Russian part. Obviously, an amphibious landing is very vulnerable, but the Russians allowed them to do it as they pleased. Now, the Russian excuse for this is that they were expecting a landing elsewhere. And, well, to be fair, the Allied troops had chosen the landing point on the spot. There was no real planning. They just sort of sailed around and spotted a place they liked and just started to unload everything. Now, from the start here, a stark difference was felt between the British and French armies. The French army was a standing professional one, which had been battle-hardened in fighting against Algeria. Most of the British soldiers, on the other hand, were new recruits, and so the British army suffered badly from poor leadership and logistics. Soon, the combination of a lack of fresh water and cramped living conditions led to cholera ravaging the men of the Allied force. Four months into the campaign, and the British and French together had lost 10,000 soldiers, solely to disease. Not a single shot had been fired, and they'd lost 10,000. Now, even with those losses, facing the Allies were about 38,000 Russian soldiers with another 18,000 sailors and a further 12,000 soldiers based around the Straits of Kerch, which is the kind of far eastern end of the Crimean Peninsula. But only those 38,000 really faced the Allies directly. The Russians dug in around the river Alma to block the Allies from reaching Sevastopol. The original plan was for the Allies to quickly move south and take Sevastopol before the Russians could react. However, the aforementioned poor logistics and planning basically ruined that and gave the Russians ample time to prepare. 
Still, the Allies kind of assumed this all would be a cakewalk and approached the battle with the entrenched Russian forces without much concern. Despite all this, the Russians were still routed by a series of flanking maneuvers. And as they fled, the Allied force again made a bad decision and paused for several days to collect itself, unaware that the Russians had lost nearly 6,000 men of their already smaller force, double that of the Allies, and were fleeing in disarray. Today, historians nearly all agree that had the, Allied had the Allies pursued the Russians, they could have easily taken Sevastopol and ended the war right there. However, their hesitancy and poor planning allowed over 30,000 Russians to escape and fortify themselves well within Sevastopol. Now, the Allies marched all the way around the city to take two ports so they could receive supplies as their initial landing spot was a beach and not a port and so they couldn't really get supplies effectively through there. Again, poor planning. Sevastopol was surrounded like this and an Allied artillery bombardment began. The Russians, for their part, were forced to scuttle most of their fleet, because it was pretty useless at this point, and use it to blockade the harbor, and subsequently take guns from the warships and move them to the walls to defend the city, along with the sailors who used to man them. In other words, the Allied delay gave the Russians time to turn Sevastopol from a terrified city overwhelmed with fleeing soldiers into a hardened fortress. Now, also around this time, Rakovtsi left Kotel for Svistov and then made his way to Bucharest, writing yet more patriotic works as he went uh, to encourage his countrymen to support the Russian cause, even though the Danubian front had been closed and so the kind of bul direct Bulgarian involvement was more or less over. Although, of course, the Allies were still using Varna as a supply port and there were still many Bulgarians fighting with the Russians. Now, the final months of 1854 saw Russian forays out of Sevastopol to disrupt Allied supply lines, leading to several battles, including the Battle of Balaclava, which contained the famous Charge of the Light Brigade, which you can look up, it's a whole story. But the important thing to take away here is that despite Allied victories and heavy Russian losses, this fighting had little impact on the overall strategic situation. Now, that winter was brutally cold, and the ship-carrying winter clothing for the Allies sank in a storm, so... That sucks. The Russian defenders ended up burning many of their own fortifications for warmth. So, well, the winter hit both sides very hard. In the late winter, Tsar Nicholas I died of pneumonia and was replaced by his son, a man who would play a very important role in Bulgarian history, Tsar Alexander II. The 37-year-old was far more open to reform than his father, and had already acquired a distaste for war from seeing all the bloodshed of the Crimean War. Now also around this time, Sardinia Piedmont, an Italian power, decided to join the war on the Italian side, or the Allied side rather. Now, you might be wondering what on earth is an Italian state doing getting involved in all this, and the answer is pretty simple. They wanted French support to unify Italy against Austria's wishes. Between this and the revolutions of 1848, we're seeing overall that attempts to unify both Germany and Italy are without a doubt growing more and more intense. So that's something we'll be keeping an eye on. Now, while not much was happening throughout the winter, as spring of 15, 1855 came, fighting began to pick up again. April saw a massive Allied bombardment of a Sevastopol, which did substantial damage, but was not connected to any ground attack, so shrug. 
By late May, the Allies did manage to take the Straits of Kersh, which allowed them to gain control of the Sea of Azov, substantially cutting off Russian supplies. By mid-June, the Allies finally began making a ground assault on Sevastopol, taking some of the lines, but still leaving the city in Russian hands. Though, overall, the Allies really spent the summer from this point on gradually taking more and more positions and hemming in the Russians further and further. In August, the Russians attempted to relieve the city, but this is defeated. Now, overall, while the war is progressing pretty well for the Allies at this point, again, the Ottoman treasury was very much feeling the crunch. Despite 8 million pounds in loans, they were still facing budget shortfalls, in part because of all the interest they had to pay on those loans. In response to these shortfalls, tax farmers were given yet more rights and more leeway to collect taxes as they wished, allowing them to inflict far more abuse on everyday subjects. Bulgarians in particular, as we know. Traders in particular also faced faced harsh tax increases, which, as you can imagine, was a blow to the Bulgarian Enlightenment, because Bulgarian traders were a big source of the revenue needed to fund the Enlightenment. To make things worse, in response to these increased taxes, more and more landowners throughout the Ottoman Empire began to declare their land as the part of these, I think I've talked about them before, these kind of untaxed Islamic charitable trusts, which basically meant, well, they couldn't be taxed. It was kind of a, basically a very, very substantial tax loophole, which created a situation in the Ottoman Empire where wealthy people paid a lot less tax than poor people because they had this option. And as wealthy people did this even more, the Ottoman government had to rely even more on poor peasants as their only major source of revenue. So, in other words, while we've been seeing Bulgarians gain more rights in recent decades as the central Ottoman government made some attempts at reforms to reduce the everyday abuses faced by Bulgarian peasants and to reduce the economic burden of things like tax farming, the new economic burden of the Crimean War has already destroyed much of that progress. So some Bulgarians are doing fantastically well. Many Bulgarian merchants were making a killing during the Crimean War, exporting 23 million francs worth of goods to the French out of the port of Varna alone over the course of the war. But overall, this didn't mean much for those peasants. So if you're familiar with a lot of the Bulgarian books and stories and media about you know, the Ottoman abuses and how bad the Ottoman period was, they really tend to focus on the period between the Crimean War and Bulgaria's sort of semi-independence in the 1870s, because that's when those decades of 19th century reforms come crashing down and things get very, very bad. But we'll cover that in future episodes. Now, getting back to Crimea, the final assault, which took Sevastopol, took place in September. Now, at this point, the Allies were exhausted, and they spent the subsequent winter destroying Russian port facilities in the city, fulfilling their original objective for the campaign. But, importantly, this was also very much a winter of discontent back home in Britain and France. New technologies like the telegraph, along with those newspapers, meant that the abysmal administration and conduct of the war was well known back in Britain and France, leading to mass demonstrations against it. Many families throughout Britain and France had sent their young men off to fight, and those young men were now dying because of the stupidity of their leaders or things like cholera. And those families knew about it, and they were not happy about it. 
This again shows the tremendous power of public opinion as it's developing because it's forcing leaders to continue the war or even change the way they're going about it. In fact, the British prime minister actually was forced to resign as a result of this situation. Thus, in the early months of 1856, negotiations to finally end the war begin in Paris. And that's where I'm going to end this episode today, with the Russian loss in the Crimean War, but the ramifications not yet clear. Next time, we'll see what peace will bring and go into more detail about how the conflict event affected the Ottoman Empire and the Bulgarians within it. So, check that out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and you can see the images and timeline and all that good stuff for this episode in the episode description. So be sure to check that out, and I'll catch you in the next one.